Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food Studies. I'm your host, Ari Ariel, and today I'll be talking to Yael Raviv, the director of the Umami Food and Art Festival, which is a nonprofit arts organization bringing together artists and food professionals. Yael also teaches at NYU's Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, and she received her PhD also from NYU in the Department of Performance Studies. Today we'll be talking about her new book, Falafel Nation, Cuisine and the Making of National Identity in Israel. Hi, Al. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ari. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Um, I wonder if we could start by um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into this project, how you got into writing this book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's going to be a long and winding road of a story. But uh, um, uh, I came uh, to, the, to the U.S. Uh, just over 20 years ago um, to do graduate work in theater, which was my background. I ended up in the performance studies department because I was interested less in sort of traditional theater and more in, um, I guess, uh, popular uh, entertainment and uh, masks and puppets and carnivals and stuff like that. And so I ended up there. I really enjoyed the department and at some point uh, got married, started a family and didn't really want to go back to working in theater in that way. It didn't seem conducive to a family and decided to go on to a PhD. And when I had to decide about a topic for a PhD, um, again, I didn't really want to work on anything from traditional theater. And I've always enjoyed food. I went to culinary school, sort of in between undergrad and graduate school for a while uh, in my first year in the States. And I've studied with BKG, with Barbara Kirschenbad-Gimblet, uh, a course on food and performance. And all of a sudden, it seemed like a great idea to write something on food and performance and something that I always enjoyed. And I came up with this idea. So this is in the, in the, around uh, in the late 90s um, to write about food and as a performance of national identity in Israel. And I really thought that uh, Barbara, who was my advisor, would laugh me out of her office with this ridiculous suggestion, the fact that you know, this conveniently brings together a lot of things that I enjoy, like, and care about. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that this is interesting for anybody else to read about. But she was actually very encouraging. 
Um, and I started dissertation work, and it was really fascinating. Did a lot of um, research in archives in Israel and interviewed people. Um, there wasn't that much kind of uh, written on the subject at the time, and it was really, really wonderful um, to work on. And finished dissertation in 2002. And because, you know, we're that many years later than that, you can just imagine that um, that dissertation, um, I've never done academia full time. I've always done it sort of part time. And so it took me a very long time to to remake it um, into a manuscript. Uh, and the original dissertation was also very much focused on the period between um I guess the first Zionist Congress in, in 1967, um, but the book really pulls it to the present and brings in some other stuff. So, um, um, yeah, and here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a great project, actually. In the time, you know, between you started when you started writing it, and now there's been so much more literature on the topic that now the book really seems very timely, which is, I'm sure, great for you. Uh, yeah, and if um, it was five years ago, it was probably would have been probably even more timely. <laughs> <laughs> So you say in the introduction that you initially thought that writing about food might be a, a non-political or less political way to address nationalism. And I, I assume over the writing of the book, you realize that that was not the case. Could you perhaps talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's just the years that have passed, you know, and, and I um, have become older and wiser or, you know, um, I don't know, maybe people just, uh, maybe I was just naive. Um, but I guess also leaving Israel and moving away, you think you can get away um, from some of the political issues and talk about things more objectively or more universally. Um, and then you realize when you write about things that you want to be specific. And when you talk about a particular place, um, no, no matter, I'm, I'm sure what it is you're, you're writing about, not necessarily just food, um, that the situation is so um, that you can't get away from, you know, the realities of daily life, especially if you're writing about a topic such as food, which is so much a part of daily life. And I guess food in particular, because it's so connected to so many other areas of life, right? It is really influenced by religion and um, uh, culture and economics and, you know, all of those things. And it even more so uh, maybe um, is influenced by politics as well. And you really can't get away from talking about that. And, and then I guess also with time, I, d I didn't want to get away from talking about it. I, it was just challenging to find the right way to talk about it, I guess, in the context of an academic publication. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers yeah, that question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the book really seems to do two things. It, it's a historical narrative. Maybe we can get into the meat of that historical narrative now. And it also looks at certain kinds of themes. So pleasure in food versus utilitarian food, different forms of media, maybe the idea of multiculturalism. Um, so maybe in, you could talk a little bit for our listeners, especially who, who are not familiar with the topic, a little bit about the earlier period of Zionist uh, migration to Palestine and kind of the, the idea of agricultural labor and, and how that was important to the Zionist mm -hmm. movement. Absolutely. I think one of the really interesting things when I started researching this project was, um, you know, when you, most kind of food centered books at the time were about written about France or China or Japan, you know, really uh, cultures where food is so important. Um, and I was kind of hesitant a little bit when I was approaching, um, you know, writing about Zionism and food, because in the early years of Zionism, food, um, you know, from the consumption point of view was, was, uh, in, in, um, really unimportant. I mean, um, what was really important was agriculture, and that was important throughout, 
so the production of food rather than the consumption of food. And what I realized as I was writing that, um, you know, a country where food, that treats food um, kind of intentionally, deliberately as, uh, you know, focuses on production versus consumption, you know, that's as telling, obviously, as, you know, any other approach to food, right? You can come, you can talk about food in that culture, even though um, it's sort of marginalized. So, um and the beginning of uh, of Zionism, agriculture played a really important part because it allowed um, the Zionist movement to do two things. Uh, first of all, to illustrate, uh, to kind of draw a connection between the new immigrants and biblical times and sort of the, their forefathers in biblical times, uh, really draw this sort of direct line um, by uh you know, bringing people from Europe to this new place and putting them to work, connecting them to the land very um, directly, right? You're working the land, you're more connected to it, so creating this direct connection, but also to this sort of uh, more rural lifestyle that's more reminiscent of um, kind of biblical times. So um, so creating this connection on the one hand, creating this um, uh, to biblical times and to the land, and also remaking this the Jewish figure. So instead of this studious uh, person um, or, you know, a merchant or any of the other kind of typical uh, images of uh, Jewish existence in the diaspora, especially in Europe, uh, they could create remake this uh, Jewish figure and into this vital, strong, um, uh, self-sufficient uh, person, you know, working the land. Uh, and, and so agriculture played a role in, in all of these uh, aims and uh, was really, really important, this idea of uh, working the land and supporting the future, you know, building the nation, um, working towards building this future for the nation. All of those themes are really important. And I assume that socialism probably was in, inspired the or <laughs> de-inspired the interest in food. Uh, yeah, it, it was all about. So the ideology was very aesthetic. So it's all about the future of the nation and the good of the group um, and individual pleasures and needs were really marginalized. So consumption is really not important, but production is really important. Right. And it, it also affected um, gender roles at that time. Right. Because um, men. Uh, can you know uh, seen as uh, stronger and so more productive in the field and therefore more important uh, working towards this um, you know uh, this goal whereas women were kind of um, um, marginalized in in that way as well because they they were deemed as less productive and uh, so pushed towards service roles rather than you know working in the field. Even though, you know, when we think of socialism, you know, one of the myths, right, is this myth of equality, of everybody working side by side. But the reality, especially in the early years, was very different. And so and then it seems like there's a shift around maybe the mid 20s where you go from a focus on on Jewish labor or Hebrew labor, probably more correctly, to buying Hebrew products like you mentioned, the Hebrew watermelon or a Hebrew banana. Can, can you talk about that a little? Those are interesting ideas. Yeah, I love that, right? It's so funny to think of a piece of fruit as nationalized. But um, uh, so uh, I, I guess there are um, a couple of themes that, that pull in to that period of time. First of all, you know, we, when we think of local, um, you know, buying local products, typically it's, you know, whatever grows around you know, in that area. But in the case uh, of Zionism in the 20s, you know, we have obviously local products grown by Arab um, hands and ones that are grown by Jewish hands. And the whole idea of, you know, Hebrew uh, labor and Hebrew products became really important. How do you tell the two apart? I mean, the watermelon is a watermelon. They're both grown 
you know, in fields next to each other. Um, so you had to have these marks, you know, these little labels that mark one as Hebrew and one as, you know, and the lack thereof marks it as not. And having this idea of uh, purchasing local products is something that promotes uh, the local economy, that promotes the nation, that, again, supports the future of the nation. And in this particular case, then it's not just local products, but one um, raised by Jewish hands to support this particular population. And the interesting, I mean, it sounds horrible on some level, but the, the I think part of the um, sort of ideology behind this is really these early settlers not wanting to think of themselves as colonizers, as somebody coming into a new country and taking over and using the local population. So really reinforcing this idea that, you know, we came here and we're doing everything ourselves. You know, we're working the land ourselves. We're not taking advantage of any anybody, um, which is, you know, a little bit of a kind of twist on reality. Um, but uh, really, uh, in all the early rhetoric, is a lot about showing the land as empty um, and these early settlers as, as um, you know, working it with their own hands, growing their own product. So a big focus on sort of this idea of Hebrew labor. And um, and then in the 20s and 30s, also the, the uh, sort of the makeup of immigrants changed a little bit. And we see more you know, families, less kind of single young people coming and we see a kind of rise of uh, families, people moving to the urban centers. So um, retail sales all of a sudden, you know, and food and and from consumption side side starts becoming a little more important and and therefore recruited uh, really to sell the same agenda of of, uh, Zionism, this idea that if you buy Hebrew products, you're supporting the nation, you know, it's a patriotic act. Um, So in this particular case, it's worth, um, you know, going out of your way, searching for these products or paying more for them because they were more expensive than Arab grown products um, because the Jewish workers were charging a little more. So it's worth all that because, you, you know, it's for the greater good. It's for the future of the nation. So you mentioned increased immigration, and, and it sounds like um, with increased migration and increased Jewish presence in Palestine, two things happen. The, the issue becomes more organized, so there's more conscious effort maybe to construct national cuisine, mm-hmm. but also new immigrants are coming from a, var- a variety of places, so they must be coming with drastically different food ways, yeah. and that must complicate the, the picture. Could you talk about those things? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, in the... 20s and 30s, we still see immigration, uh, you know, mostly Europe, Jewish European immigration, um, you know, so Central Europe now versus, um, you know, Eastern Europe earlier on. But then I think, it's, and you know, obviously, especially after independence, um, you really see a big break, you know, after 1948 with the mass immigration from um, also North Africa and Middle Eastern countries, um, you know, you really feel that extreme of, the, you know, all these immigrants from all these different um, countries of origin and ethnic backgrounds um, that are all coming to this one place together. But but you're right, throughout sort of Zionism, there's always that um, sort of struggle to bring people that come from very different backgrounds, really, um, and, and kind of meld them together into one nation and show that they are a single nation, that they do have all these things in common that bring them together and, um, and really forge all these sort of secular uh, markers uh, that unify all of them because really what they have in common mostly is is religion and you know holiday traditions and even that you know is, is uh, only to a, to a limited degree. Um, so the Zionist movement and then later the government works really hard on forging you know unity, melding all these groups into um, uh, one nation 
And one of the things that they do is really, I mean, so they use really anything and everything, any cultural product that they can. And definitely food was one of those things. Um, and then, and we have, uh, we also see, you know, immigrants from uh, Central Europe. We see women that were trained in um, home economics, you know, from the, the kind of 30s and on. We see women that were trained in home economics and are coming and are starting to really build up that whole, um, you know, really teach uh, you know, the right way to cook. Um, and it's really funny sometimes because um, uh, new immigrants, you know, in the mass immigration were, were sort of um, acculturated, were uh, trained uh, upon arriving in Israel by these women, you know, largely um, Central European and Eastern European women uh, on the right way to eat, um, which is kind of funny because they come from backgrounds in terms of climate and so on that are maybe much more fitting uh, the Israeli sort of climate, um, and and the main the main thing that we see, you know, the main difference that we see is holiday dishes, where um, all the holiday dishes that they're taught to make are all um, kind of uh, European uh, holiday dishes, uh, and other cultures really kind of get um, um, you know lost uh, uh, other culinary traditions, you know, from other ethnic backgrounds, especially um, ethnic backgrounds from Middle Eastern countries. Um, be in, in North African because those are seen um, as the culture of the enemy, right? The, the the Arabs around us. So those are really kind of played down versus anything from Europe. This idea of creating this unified nation as uh, as Western, uh, European in nature. Um, the rhetoric is all about like Western, modern. You know, we're bringing civilization to the Middle East, um, and that's something that played a big role in the early years in terms of. Um, integrating immigrants from other backgrounds into Israeli culture. So, so you mentioned sort of religion as the most obvious common factor among all these immigrant groups, and maybe for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Israeli context, can you say something about kashrut? Was kashrut, was kosher food important to, to mm -hmm. earlier Zionist attempts to create a cuisine and to the new immigrants? Or what's the role of, of kashrut throughout the different periods? Um, uh, that's so interesting because the, the, Early, early immigrants, um, the socialist immigrants from Eastern Europe, Europe really shunned religion, right? That was part of the kind of socialist uh, lifestyle. Uh, religion was another bourgeois construct along with family and all those other things. Um, and they really shunned it and did not um, really care for it. But as uh, time passes and we have, um, you know, more traditional um, you know, less radical, I'd say, immigrants coming in, um, Kashrut begins to um, appear again. And what's more important, you know, maybe what's more interesting is that whenever we have an official um, sort of state project, um, it, it, it seems important that it be uh, kosher. So anything that's about the representation of Israel towards the outside, um, the idea of kosher food as a marker of the Jewish nation uh, is really important. So to this day, um, obviously the army serves only kosher food to allow everybody um, to serve, uh, but also, you know, the national airline, the, um, you know, any government function abroad, any, anything, you know, that really represents Israel. Most hotels serve kosher food and, and so, you know, if you think of representation to outsiders, so that it plays a part in, in that way, sort of a marker of the Jewish nation. And something that's really interesting, you know, when you look, I, I spoke at some point to Uri Gutman, who um, represented, uh, Chef Uri Gutman represented Israel, um, many years uh, uh, in culinary competitions abroad, and he told me that um, he would never 
cook anything that was overtly non-kosher. So he would never make a dish with pork or seafood or, you know, um, but uh, he he would finish his sauces with butter or he, he would do the things that he needed to do that were unseen to be able to compete on an international national level. You know, if you use these, um, you know, if you use kosher um, uh, substitutions, it could be a challenge. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting, this idea that it needs to seem kosher if it's a formal representation of the Jewish state. As the as the Israeli kitchen or, or Israeli cooks are professionalized, does that have some impact on the, the gender roles involved in kitchen work? Um, uh, yeah, I guess uh, one of the big changes was just this idea of thinking of food as somewhat as not a natural skill that all women are born with. That's <laughs> something that you need to um, teach. And you know, the early years were so frustrating, I think, to many of these young women. Um, you know, so when we look at the really early years of the previous century, uh, these women that were, we have to remember, were about 17, were very young, uh, came from um, sort of low middle class homes, never really cooked at home, let alone for, you know, 20 other people in a country with very few products. But uh, they were seen as sort of natural cooks. They must know how to cook because they're women and were put into kitchens. Um, and it was a very frustrating, difficult time. And. Uh, with with time, people really realize that this is, um, uh, you know, a skill that can be and should be taught. And we start seeing more publications on the subject and, you know, women that started uh, from the women's organization started teaching cooking in more organized ways and you know, in different ways. Um, and then, of course, later on, um, kind of goes hand in hand with the rise of the status of food and cooking. Uh, we see. Uh, a development of a tourism industry of restaurants and more and more more male cooks. Uh, yet uh, one of the main distinction, you know, between sort of professional restaurants and hotels and workers' kitchens was that in the workers' kitchens, everything that anything that was sort of to, um, uh, was created to supplement uh, to I guess uh, take over this idea of the home kitchen. Any of those were still run by women, and restaurants and hotel kitchens and so on were run by men. Um, and then later on, we start seeing, uh, you know, culinary schools and so on and, and the greater gender uh, gap in that respect that is now in recent years, you know, we're starting to kind of reclaim it a little bit back you know, and seeing more women in professional kitchens as well as, as we do all over the world. So, And, and in addition to, to kind of, uh, I don't know, in-person kitchen lessons, you call them, or, or cooking lessons in formal institutions, you also write quite a bit about what you call the virtual kitchen. So teaching cooking through books or media or, or in the more contemporary or the mm -hmm. internet. How has that per perhaps developed over the last decades? Um, I think in a, in a way it's, it's kind of coming around full circle in a weird way. Um, uh, so in the very, very early years, there, there are no cookbooks, as I said, it wasn't, you know, nobody thought of that as something um, that, that you need because people were so used to just learning uh, in the kitchen from, you know, an older woman um, or even in a restaurant setting, you know, you, you're, you apprentice, right? And um, in the case of uh, these young immigrants, they didn't have anyone to learn from. The older generation stayed abroad and they, they weren't there to learn from. So you needed to create other ways of teaching. So cookbooks start to be written. So initially we have cookbooks um, uh, as something, you know, that, that seemed really necessary um, for these young women so that they could learn how to cook. Um, and I'm saying women on purpose because it was really, really largely women. Um, and then 
But in recent years, obviously, we started having television and internet, other modes of uh, of transmitting culinary knowledge that, in a way, kind of bring these people uh, into our kitchen, if you will. You know, when you look at culinary shows, um, really have the sense of this person coming into your home, right? We know them really intimately and we see the food up close and, you know, so we can't taste, we can't smell, but at least we get much more um, uh, information than, than we did in cookbooks um, and Definitely today with the uh, internet where, you know, we have, we have this wealth of blogs and, you know, little uh, YouTube videos, you know, all those different things and, um, and apps and, and whatnot. So, um, uh, you know, we see more. So, so we, it's not like we don't need culinary knowledge. On the, uh, on the contrary, you know, we're trying to kind of uh, find new ways of uh, being in the kitchen with someone, um, which I think is, is really interesting, uh, you know, a little bit. Kind of going back to the beginning, if you will. Has the the growth in in media about food in Israel also diversified the kind of foods that are available or that are being talked about? I know in the earlier period it sounded like there was, I don't know, maybe sort of an Ashkenazi dominated mm-hmm. cuisine that that was then slowly developed with immigration, and there were more ethnic cuisines. And I wonder how how you see that developing until the present. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think in two ways. First of all. Um, Different ethnic groups within Israel have really um, become more and more uh, influential and respected. And, you know, so we see, I think one of the earliest people to really um, uh, impact that was uh, Chef Chaim Cohen, who had um, an amazing uh, French uh, restaurant, uh, Keren, a fine dining French restaurant in Jaffa. Um, And at some point he started offering um, dishes that were influenced by his mother's cooking. Um, and, you know, really, you know, he was such a respected, formally trained chef. And this was such a, you know, so this idea of bringing these ethnic cuisines into um, the arena of fine dining um, was a really new thing. But And today we see that more and more, you know, we see more and more chefs, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a given people really um, incorporate all these different influences. And you can see fine dining restaurants um, with chefs that were trained in a variety of uh, places abroad, but they also cook um combinations, you know, things um, that are really influenced by their different ethnic backgrounds, whether it's Iraqi or Moroccan or whatever, um, you know, and combine them with those classic techniques. And the other thing is also, um, you know, Israel's are in, Israelis are incredibly well-traveled, I think, as a group. Um, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, other influences that are brought in. So um, a lot of people travel to the Far East and bring back, um, you know, influences from there or from different countries in Europe. And um, and, and, and very recently, we have immigrants that come from other countries, um, mostly uh, refugees, illegal um, immigrants, but also people that came, uh, you know, with work visas um, from places like Eritrea and Sudan and uh, from different, you know, different parts of the world. And they're not yet really integrated into mainstream Israeli culture. They're also not Jewish, which is a big change. Um, but they're becoming a presence, especially in certain areas in Israel. I think it'd be really interesting to see. So they're bringing with them new ingredients, obviously, and new ways of cooking. They have their own restaurants. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see how that impacts kind of Israeli cuisine. But it's definitely a cuisine that's... Um, heavily impacted by, by a variety of international influences, so both from within and from without. I know this may seem like a silly question because Israel is geographically so small, but is there a, are there regional differences in Israeli cuisine? And, and part of why I ask is because in an, in an earlier chapter you talk about 
uh, you use the King David Hotel and Hakazba mm-hmm. restaurant and nightclub sort of as representative of the split between kosher and non-kosher. Mm-hmm. And it made me think also in the Israel studies literature, there's kind of a split that's often written about between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv mm-hmm. in terms of culture and ideology. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering sort of between cities, but also maybe in a more regional sense, if, if you see big differences in cuisine. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good question because I want to say on, on some level there isn't because it's, as I say, such a small place, but, but there also is, right? I mean, there's, um, there's definitely some stuff that's unique in the Galilee. You know, if you look um, in that area, there's some, differences, um, definitely in the big cities, Tel Aviv is not the same as anywhere else, really, in, in some ways. Um, but, but I don't know if it'll be, I, I don't know, I'm kind of hesitating. I think it, uh, regional differences are not as important, I guess, mm-hmm. um, as because there's because it is so small. Um, may, maybe very recently, this idea of the Galil as this other region, um, but uh, and you know like this as i said this um you know these uh, immigrant communities from uh, you mm-hmm. know of refugees and so on are really um a large within the center around tel aviv and um and also tel aviv well but i but i think it's less of it, less important i'm kind of thinking out loud but <laughs> i think it's less important than the sort of ethnic um okay. divisions within israel i mean that's my kind of view on it but again, Israel changes so rapidly, it seems. Like if you kind of turn around, you know, two years later, there's something else mm-hmm. going on. So so the the last big chapter makes sort of a shift from professional kitchens and, and formal kinds of cooking to cooking in the public sphere. And you talk about, um, I guess, outdoor cooking primarily. So the idea of cooking um, like a kumzitz, the, the idea of a barbecue, the idea of, of maimuna, and it also seems to shift the, the focus back to a kind of male cooking, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I would uh, at least, uh, I would imagine that a lot of the outdoor cooking is male. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about that phenomena. And I wonder also if that must have been a hard chapter to write because the sources may have been very, you know, dispersed or, or, or those more oral histories or mm-hmm. ethnographies that you're doing there. Yeah, I mean, um, I was really debating, you know, how to approach that, but it's such a big part of, of uh, the culture, you know, the culinary culture in Israel. And I thought the Kumsitz was fascinating because it really shows, um, you know, the whole process of, you know, if you follow the changes in that, it really gives you like a little, it's like a mini, um, you know, world. So concert, like everything that happens, you can really kind of pull back and look at the changes in the Kumsitz and kind of see it. You know, sorry, maybe tell us what the kumzitz is. Oh, I'm sorry, that. of course. Um, so uh, kumzitz is actually um, uh, means come sit. Uh, you know, it, it's this idea of uh, people gathering together around a fire, um, you know, outdoors, sitting together, you know, a group of equals around the fire uh, to sing songs and, and, and share some uh, coffee or, or, you know, a bit of food. And So maybe like a bonfire in the American yeah, context. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, uh, so food is not you know, a central element of that gathering originally. Um, it's more about, you know, the camaraderie, like a bonfire, right? You sit around. Uh, and and um, in the, the kind of Israeli context at the time, it was not, you know, it wouldn't be alcohol that would be served, but it would be, you know, coffee. And it was also part of this this um, attempt at the early, of the early immigrants um, uh, um, to, to kind of find... Um, these role models to emulate and they were really modeling themselves to a large degree after Bedouin culture, which is also, you know, where gender roles are really, um, 
specific, really. Um, so it was kind of the male Bedouin, you know, this idea of a coffee ritual uh, outside. Um, this again, coming back to you know, what we said about agriculture, this idea of being connected to the land, knowing the land, um, uh, you know, being part of nature. So, you know, very much a natural setting kind of thing. Um, so people from rural areas would gather around. And, you know, so there wasn't television, there, were, there weren't nightclubs, there weren't coffee shops. So people really had to make their own entertainment. So these bonfires, you know, really came to, to offer that. Um, you know, and you'd steal a chicken, you know, from the kibbutz, whatever, and you'd roast, you'd uh, cook it. Uh, and I always imagined it being roasted because that's what, you know, you would think you'd do with a fire. Um, but uh, I, I was blown away when people told me, yeah, we'd put it in a pot and cook it, you know, like soup. Because they're all Eastern European immigrants. And what did they know about roasting chickens? You know, they just cooked it the way that they would cook it in the kitchen. I thought it was hilarious. But um, so, so you know, we have that. Um, and, and But with time, as, um, um, you know, Israeli culture changes and becomes more, um, you know, consumerist, more urban-centered, um, we see a sort of shift and we see more something that's not so much, you know, these young people going out to the fields, even though that still exists, right, uh, throughout, um, especially with the youth movements. Um, but we see more um, kind of mainstream, more something that's more reminiscent of the American barbecue, but it's a picnic, so it's not, you know, going to your backyard and grilling meat, but, but um, you know, getting in your car and going out to nature somewhere. And then picnicking and you can, you know, um, grill meat or you can, you know, do something else. But, you know, there's always it's not in your backyard, but it's out in nature, which I think is the big difference. So, again, part of this idea of knowing the land and being part of the land and and, and this connection to nature. Um, and with, you know, with time and as food became more and more um, important in Israeli culture and more sophisticated and people had more and more money to spend on it, we really see, you know, four by four vehicles with more sophisticated equipment traveling to the, you know, some random place in the desert and then, you know, making espresso with little espresso machines and, you know, carrying really sophisticated equipment. Um, so, so, but it remains, you know, but it still holds to the same values, right? This idea of going out to nature, being part of the land, um, you know, showing your knowledge of the land by, by being able to find these out of the way little um, gems and so on. But kind of, so, so it's really interesting to see how some, you know, what remains uh, throughout and, and, and what changes. So one, one idea that maybe brings together a lot of these ideas, you talk a, a bit about Maimuna at the end, mm -hmm. which seems to talk, which, you know, has a lot to do with food in the public sphere, but also with ethnic diversity and how different kinds of cuisines are, are presented. Could you tell tell us what Maimuna is and, and yeah. how you thought about it? Yeah. Um, um, so again, it, I guess it's more of a case study, right? I, I'm sure I could have talked about other things, but it just seemed to pull together some other, some a variety of, of kind of um, uh, issues. Um, so Maimuna is a holiday celebration um, that's kind of specific, mostly to Moroccan um uh, Jews, but you know, to a few other um, uh, countries in the region. But um, uh, its its origins are really a little obscure, right? It's, un it's unclear, but it's right after Passover, um, and traditionally, it had a um, the, you know this idea of uh, uh, the, the main sort of custom was that people would uh, visit each other, and there would be a table of sweets, just sweet things uh, to really mark, you know. Um, uh, the year to come as a sweet and, you know, uh, a happy one, right? And um, 
Uh, and there was, and there's some component of going out to nature and picnicking, you know, it has to do with sort of spring, you know, it's in that time. Um, but it's a little more, um, you know, less prevalent, I guess. Um, and then the Mimun celebrations really changed when, um, Moroccan Jews came to Israel, uh, it, slowly. It became, you know, the, the focus changed to more of this sort of going out to nature celebration. Um, and people kind of gathered together and, it became, um, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant because I'm trying to kind of find the way of telling this story in a very short um, <laughs> uh, uh, way. Um, but anyway, it transformed over time and, and became the, the sort of this uh, element um, that the rest of Israeli society really saw. So people were not invited into Moroccan Jews' homes uh, for these suites. What they did see was the kind of public element uh, of a celebration outside. And that became, you know, so there's a lot of, grilling of meats, uh, you know, because that's like part of the Israeli kumzitz culture, right? Um, and, you know, uh, also sh- um, um, it, it became this place where politicians would come and show their, um, you know, to kind of court the votes of this community uh, as it became more and more important and influential. Um, and, you know, so it became these huge mass celebrations outside that were about, that were very different from sort of the original custom. Uh, and then with recent years, um, I guess also with growing confidence and influence um, of these people, uh, of this particular ethnic group, uh, people are kind of going back to their home. I mean, and it's not like it was ever um, completely abandoned, the, the, this idea of the table of sweets. It was always there, but it was just not um, well known by other groups. Uh, but now it's kind of, you know, kind of stepping back maybe a little bit from those large celebration, being more suspicious of the politicians and so on that, that are courting this particular group. And, you know, it's like, we don't need them. Um, and if you, you know, if you're a real um, friend um, of a Moroccan Jew, you would be invited into their home to take part in this more intimate celebration. Um, you know, you can't just uh, come to this kind of public celebration and court the vote. Um, so there's sort of a, a going back into reclaiming the, the more traditional ways. It's really interesting because it sounds like it, it goes from a sort of a local practice to then a, a public display mm-hmm. to then almost a, a folklore festival. And then yeah. the Moroccan community kind of pulls back and, and is not sure that it's comfortable with the performative aspect. Exactly. Oh, that was so well said. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm just repeating what you said. <laughs> so given all of this, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question. I could ask the same thing about the, the U.S., but is there actually an Israeli cuisine? I mean, after this whole, I don't know, century or so of yeah. of immigrant cuisines and immigrant groups and the, the state constructing a cuisine, what what's the outcome of all of that? Well, I think, you know, I, I, uh, a lot of it is how do you define, you know, the word cuisine, right? And we could always argue about that anywhere, right? Like, how do you define American cuisine where there's so many regional variations, right? You could say the same thing. Um, but I think, you know, as long as they're Israelis and they eat something, there is an Israeli cuisine, um, so to speak. Um, but, but there is definitely, you, you really can see certain things that are um, uh, sort of essential, right? There are certain... Um, uh, uh, Otolenghi uh, and Sami Tamini's book, uh, Jerusalem, they talk at some point, they say something really nice about kind of trying to find the DNA of a cuisine, which I thought was such a nice expression. So there are things, you know, if you really look at a cuisine, you know, what's the DNA of the cuisine? What are the things that are really, um, you know, we can really see them everywhere? And I think Israeli cuisine is starting to have, you know, you can really pull out some, you know, strings like that. Um, you know, whether it's... Um, 
And I think one of them is this being very open, this very open cuisine that is very changeable and is constantly influenced and, and shifts by, you know, these outside, you know, these, these various outside influences. And I know that that's true for any cuisine. Um, but in Israel, you really do see this openness. You know, you can see um, a, a French restaurant with dishes that are uh, inspired by some combination of Japan and Iraq, you know, it's like these odd combinations that are, that are sometimes really beautiful. Um, you know, this idea of uh, fresh um, produce is, is really prevalent and, and, and so on, you know, like uh, meat is less important. You can, you can pull out different strings. Um, but I think this openness is, is one of, the, one of the, the kind of hallmarks of Israeli cuisine, if you will. Um, and and it's, uh, uh, it is a combination. It does uh, pull together a lot of things from the Middle East now, a lot, you know, originally it was much more sort of European influence and now it's much more heavily influenced by Middle East um, and obviously by Arab cuisine, but also by uh, various ethnic groups that come from Middle Eastern countries. Um, and I think there's something really nice about that, you know, this idea that it's, um, it's, you know, if it's located in the Middle East, it's located in the Middle East. It's not trying to be somewhere else and, and kind of embracing that partly through uh, embracing um, these particular influences. And I know Israel is always kind of um, uh, kind of uh, wondering, you know, where is, where is it really located? Is it in the Mediterranean? You know, is it European and in the Mediterranean or is it in the Middle East? Um, and, and I think a lot of that negotiation, you can see it, you know, in the cuisine. You know, is it a Mediterranean cuisine? Is it a Middle Eastern cuisine? And in the end, it's, good, it's some combination, which I think is, is actually... Um, exciting on some level, you know, to see um, how um, these different identities are, are um, um, all juggled together through the kitchen. Um, but I think that um, the process of, uh, uh, of defining that cuisine, you know, really reflects the process of defining you know, what is Israel. So it's almost like, is there, if there's an Israeli identity, there must be an Israeli cuisine. Wow. Thank you. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Uh, sure. Lately, I've been working, trying to kind of pull together a few of the things that I've been doing. I've been writing about um, artists that use food as a medium or use food in their work, both Israeli and Palestinian artists that invest, so investigate uh, identity, especially national identity, through their artwork uh, by using food. So really kind of pulling together a lot of the different things I've been working on uh, until now. Um, so a couple of chapters that deal with that are coming out in different contexts. Excellent. I, I look forward very much to reading them. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.